0: We have uh, been in a series on the apostles, the 12 apostles of Jesus. Apostles, called apostles, um, to be distinguished from disciples, you and I are disciples. Anybody who's a follower of Jesus is a disciple. Disciple is somebody who is a learner, is discipled, being discipled and growing. Apostles is a name that's reserved for those who saw Jesus, who uh, walked with him. So there were the 12 apostles. Paul considered himself an apostle because of uh, his Damascus Road experience. He saw Jesus at that time. We've talked about um, the first, who was the first apostle to be called? Andrew, and then his brother Peter, Simon Peter, and then last week we talked about James. Not James the brother of the Lord, not James that uh, wrote the book of James in the New Testament, but the James who uh, is the son of Zebedee, James, Boanerges, son of thunder. And we're going to talk about his younger brother today. James' younger brother's name was John. Probably uh, one of the most familiar apostles in the New Testament. And there's so I mean, I could read the whole Gospel of John. He He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote, what books did John write in the New Testament? The Gospel? First, second, third John? And Revelation. He wrote five books in the New Testament. So, apart from um, like Paul and Luke, one of the most prolific New Testament writers that we have, there's, aside from reading his whole gospel, there's one passage in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verses 38 through 41, where John is mentioned by himself. Usually, when he's mentioned, he's with James, or in Acts, he's with Peter. But here's one thing he does by himself, and I think it's kind of a turning point in his life and I will explain why I think that later. Mark nine thirty-eight says, John said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, we saw a man casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he was not following us. So in other words, he wasn't one of us. He wasn't in the in crowd. Jesus said, do not forbid him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon after to speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose his reward. So John's upset because somebody's casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't with them. He was an outsider. And John says he rebuked him. But I think there's more going on than that. Let's pray. Father, as we come today to worship you, And we see how you took a ragtag bunch of men who had no religious experience or expertise or knowledge but were just fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, no real formal education and yet you transformed them and left the future of the church in their hands. I thank you for their faithfulness. And it reminds us, Lord, that ordinary people can still be used in extraordinary ways by you. And so our excuses vanish away. Speak to us now about how we can be followers in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we talked about Peter and Andrew and James. And who's James' younger brother? John. That's right. James and John, sons of thunder, Boanerges sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, as we talked about last week, was a prominent fisherman on the northern coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee, a town called Capernaum. And we think Zebedee was a prominent fisherman, uh, probably fairly affluent. He had several boats. He had several fishing crews who went out and uh, he did fairly well. We also pieced together last week that James and John's mother was named what, Salome. And we piece that together from comparing the accounts in the Gospels about the women who were at the cross when Jesus died. In um, Matthew 27, 55 and 56, let me get this straight. She's, the woman there is called the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In Mark 1540, she's called Salome. And then let's add John 19.25. You want to write this down and compare it later. In John 19.25, there are three women called Mary and then a fourth woman who's called the sister of Jesus' mother. The sister of Jesus' mother. So if you put those three accounts together, you've got the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you've got Salome, and you've got Mary's sister. And so that's where... Folks have have formulated this idea that James and John were not just fishermen, but if their mother and Mary were sisters, then that makes them what? Cousins of Jesus. Which helps us understand why when Salome, or even when they come to Jesus and say, give us seats of prominence when you come into your kingdom, not only were they early followers, not only were they faithful followers, but they were also Jesus' first cousins. And so that's why they think they deserve favorite treatment. John is also part of Jesus' inner circle. He's got the 12 disciples that go with him and learn from him and that are near him. But then when something significant happens, Jesus takes with him the three inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And when something special is going to happen, when he's going to uh, heal um, Peter's Mother in law, so we know Peter was married. Um, when, he, when he goes to raise the daughter of the synagogue official, Jairus, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, when he is going into the Garden of Gethsemane and asks the three to pray with him, it's always Peter, James, and John that he brings closer to him and pours himself into. Um, and, and they become part of this, this inner circle. And as I mentioned, he wrote five books. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation. The Gospel of John, he, he teaches about Christ. In, in the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he talks about the early church. And because an important thing about John is he's the only apostle who lives into his old age. All the other apostles die early. They're martyrs. John lives into his 90s. And so he's able to to help the church get established and to keep it on the right track. And so in the epistles, he's he's writing to the church and and giving them some guidelines about what to to stick to and what to avoid. And then in Revelation, of course, he gives his vision of the future. His brother James is the second apostle to die. And there are only two apostles whose death we have recorded in the New Testament. Who was the first apostle to die? Judas. Judas. And the second one will be James, and we're told about his death in uh, Acts 12, 2. John is the only one to live to his old age. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, because it wasn't always easy to see. I, I'm, I'm sure to see his younger brother martyred, and then the other ten apostles martyred, and have to live through all that. Dear companions and friends that he had spent his life with, and yet, in his later years, God left him here to help the church get established and help us understand and differentiate between truth and falsehood. In the early years, I've got an outline here, it looks pretty lengthy, but I just kinda got carried away when I was outlining. In the early years, we have three passages of John where sometimes he and and, uh, James kinda get carried away with themselves. In Mark 10, 35 through 37, Uh, This is the passage where they come to Jesus and say, if I ask you for something, will you promise to do it? Have have your children ever asked you that without telling you what it is? If I ask you to do something, will you promise me you'll do it? And and they say, well, it depends on what it is. And James and John say, well, let us sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come into your glory. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but in in Oriental culture, A king was, of course, a place of prominence, and the person who sat on his right hand was second in prominence, and the person who sat on his left hand was third in prominence. And so those positions next to the king were not just in proximity, but they also symbolized how important they were in the kingdom. So let us sit on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom. Um... And you got to understand that this comes from the fact that John is a son of thunder. Boanerges, he's ambitious. He is bullheaded. Um, he is um, just real focused on what he wants in life, and he's out to get it. You know, I've seen the pictures of John in medieval art and literature. You know the picture of John in Da Vinci's Last Supper? He, he looks almost effeminate. You know, he's got long, wavy hair, and he's leaning on Jesus' shoulder and kind of gazing up at him with dove-shaped eyes. You know, it's just, it's, it's really, I don't know, it's not at all like John. Put those pictures of John out of your mind completely. John, the son of thunder, who was he? He was a fisherman. He was strong. I mean, they didn't fish with a pole and a line. They fished with nets, and they had to haul those heavy nets into the boats and and I bet he, you know, he had some muscles, he was suntanned, he had his shirt off while he was fishing. So put those, you know, those weak, effeminate pictures of John completely out of your mind because that's not at all who he was. A son of thunder, ambitious, wanting a seat of, wanting a seat of prominence. The second passage in Luke 9, 51 through 56 is a passage we talked about last week with James where Jesus, it says in Luke's Gospel, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he didn't want to veer to the left or to the east and get out into the mountains or desert. He didn't want to go to the west, into the Mediterranean Sea. He wanted to go straight to Jerusalem, which meant going through Samaria. We talked last week about the feelings between the Samaritans and the Jews, how there was bad blood between them, how Samaritans... Were considered half-breeds because they stayed behind in, uh, in in Palestine when the Jews were carried off into captivity in Babylon, and when those Jews came back home, the Samaritans had intermarried with the pagans who were there and had incorporated their religion, and and uh, the Jews just despised them, and so they did not let them worship at Jerusalem, and they had to develop their own temple, their own religious cult at a place called Mount Gerizim in the north because they were not welcome in the south. And so when Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem, it just reminded the Samaritans, yeah, that's someplace where we aren't welcome. And so you aren't welcome here. When Jesus sent some of his company on ahead to make accommodations for them in the Samaritan village, they came back and said, we can't stay there. And James and John said, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on this village and how rudely you've been treated? And Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy, I came to save lives. But that's just another example of James and John's impulsiveness. And then the third account is the one that uh, we looked at here this morning where it's the only passage where John is mentioned by himself. And it kind of represents, if the first one represents his ambition and the second one represents his hot temper, calling down fire from heaven, this one kind of represents his intolerance because this is the passage where they come upon a man who's casting out demons in Jesus' name and they didn't like it because he wasn't one of them. And they said, we re- I re-, John said, we rebuked him. And Jesus said, if he's not against us, he's for us. Leave him alone. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. The gospel is not a power to be hoarded. It's good news to be shared. So John, if someone's out there doing something in my name, let them do it. Just because they aren't one of your group, part of the in-group, doesn't invalidate their ministry. And I always assumed that, that John here comes and tells Jesus this. We rebuked him. I assume that John tells Jesus this because he wanted Jesus to justify his actions. He wanted Jesus to say, you know what, John, you did right. Thank you for doing that. But as I looked at this passage and in the context, right before this passage in verses 33 through 37 is where they are discussing on, their, on the way about who was going to be greatest. And he sat down and said, if anyone be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. And then he picked up a child and said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then that's where verse 38 picks up and John says, teacher, we saw a man casting out demons in your name. When I realized what John is doing, what he's thinking about, what's going, what's going through his mind here, it occurred to me, maybe John isn't just out of the blue telling Jesus something he did because he wanted Jesus to, to justify it. I wonder if John isn't under conviction at this point and saying, you know what, Jesus, we did something else that wasn't that great either. We rebuked a man who was doing something good in your name. It's almost like under conviction John is making a confession and saying not only were we arguing about who's the greatest but we also rebuked somebody who was doing good in your name just because they weren't part of us, and we felt our power, our influence, our authority being further diminished. And I wonder if John isn't beginning to realize that, you know, the gospel, as I said, is is not a power that is given just to a select few. It's not something you want to hoard. It's something that's meant to be shared. It's good news for everybody. And if you want to be a person of influence, then you need to serve everybody. You need to become like a child. And if somebody's out there doing good in Jesus' name, you celebrate with them and you rejoice with them. And you don't rebuke them just because they aren't doing it your particular way, the way you think it needs to be done. And I think that was the turning point, maybe, in John's life. Because later on, he's not the son of thunder so much anymore. But he becomes a little more humble. And by the time we get to the epistles, all he's talking about is love. And light and darkness and truth and falsehood. But mostly love. One kind of interesting thing that I noticed um, when I was looking at these this past week is these three passages where John's ambition is mentioned in Mark 10, where his temper is mentioned in Luke 9. And where his intolerance of the man casting out demons in Jesus' name is mentioned in Mark 9. What do you notice about that? The story of ambition is found in Mark and Matthew. The story of his temper is found only in Luke. And the story of his intolerance is found in Mark and Luke. Does anything seem strange to you about that? It's not in John. John wrote, what, 21 chapters and he forgot to mention those parts of his life where he made mistakes? What a coincidence. It just didn't seem important at the time when I was writing my gospel. But none of those incidents where John fails or where he appears to be in less than positive light does he mention in his own gospel. They're always in Mark or Luke or Matthew. But none of them Or in John. I thought that was kind of funny. How, how when we remember our experience, we always kind of shade it in a positive light. The other thing that really stands out to me in the Gospel of John is he never refers to himself by his own name. He never calls himself John. What does he call himself in his Gospel? The, the The disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. It's always a reference to Jesus loving him. He never calls himself by his first name. Even when I remember sitting in a class one time and a professor got excited because he thought that he had narrowed it down and John was actually going to come out and identify himself as being John. No, he figured out some way to get around it and he always keeps that that puzzling phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never refers to himself by his first name. And and also, you know, before this week, I always thought that he was using that as a boast. I'm the one who Jesus loved. I'm his favorite. I'm his pet. You know, I, I always thought that he was kind of using that to uh, make himself look more important than the other apostles. But as I really thought about John this week, it occurred to me that he's not using that to boast. Listen to me. He's using it because... The most important thing in his life became the fact that he was loved by Jesus. That became what defined him. No longer am I the name my parents gave me. The greatest thing about me is the fact that I was loved by Jesus. I, a son of thunder, Boanerges, who did these questionable things in the past. Jesus loved me. And so anytime he talks about himself, it's the one whom Jesus loved. And the focus isn't on John, the focus, it's not on the one being loved, the focus is on the one doing the loving. That's what affected John so strongly that he kind of changed his title when he wrote his gospel. Now we got to the epistles. I kind of alluded to this earlier. There are folks who've studied the gospel in detail and the three letters of John together. And it's, I'll tell you what, it is hard to believe that the same person wrote the gospel of John in 1, 2, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Because the gospel of John is so complex and so symbolic and so deep. And I gotta tell you, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are about as simple and concrete as you can get. As a matter of fact, when we started taking Greek, 1 John is the first passage in the Bible that we translate because the language is simple, the syntax is is not complicated. You know, I remember the first time I translated, God is love and got so excited. It's just a simple verse and it's in 1 John. And that's just how simple John's theology had become. He had written his gospel, complex, symbolic, a lot of allusions and, and um, organizational things going on. But when you get to his letters, it's just real straightforward. First John is, is all about love versus hate, Second John is about truth and falsehood, Third John is about good and evil. And everything is black and white. In, in John's mind, by the time he writes his epistles, there's, there's right and there's wrong and there's no in-between. Either you love God and you love your brother or you hate your brother and you hate God. Don't say you love God when you hate your brother whom you have seen. How can you love God whom you have not seen? It's just real straightforward kind of language in his letters. And it's interesting, I guess... I've noticed this, as people grow older, and John is probably in his 70s and 80s when he writes the letters, he's probably in his 90s when he writes Revelation. As people grow older, their theology does not get more complicated. It gets more simple. God is love. Jesus loves me. The older you become, the longer you walk with Jesus, the simpler your theology becomes. When we move to Revelation, John, well, before then, John is the one at the cross, the one whom Jesus loved. And Jesus, from the cross, remember, he entrusted his mother's care to John. He said, woman, behold your son. And then looking at the beloved disciple, he said, behold your mother. And church tradition has John staying there in Jerusalem caring for Mary, Jesus' mother, until her death. And then after that, um his, his younger, let's see, his older brother James became the church's first martyr. I mentioned in Acts 12 too, and he bored that loss with great grief and the loss of the other ten apostles. He must have grieved until he alone was left. Church tradition has him becoming the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And while at Ephesus, um, under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian, he is exiled to an island called Patmos, which is out in the Aegean Sea, a little west of Ephesus, kind of like Alcatraz. It's, it's a prison island out there by itself. And it's mostly just a, a granite outcropping in the Aegean Sea. It's a harsh environment for a 90-year-old man to have to endure, sleeping on sleeping on concrete with a a rock for a pillow. And several years ago, Susan and Catherine and I were on a tour to Greece and we actually had an opportunity to visit Patmos. And uh, we were standing there in this, this kind of grotto where John supposedly, as tradition, wrote the Revelation. And, and the uh, tour guy said, don't touch anything. And so Susan whispered to me, I'll distract him, you go touch it. So while he was looking away, I went over in this, this granite outcropping where you know, it was kind of cut into the stone. And that's the area where John supposedly resided inside that little concrete cave. And I put my hand on that concrete cover, or, or I'm sorry, granite cover, and looked eastward toward Ephesus and, and and the Aegean Sea. I'd never seen any water as smooth as that. It's, it's almost like glass. And I couldn't help but think of as I looked out on the Aegean Sea, Revelation chapter four verse six says before the throne there is as it were a sea of glass like crystal and then at a funeral friday we were singing victory in jesus and we got to that verse that said i heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea i can't help but wonder if as john got his vision of what heaven was like he was looking out across that sea toward ephesus and seeing that 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 sea that looked like glass like crystal It was so smooth and so beautiful. And and in spite of the hardships that a man in his 90s was forced to endure on that island, there's no mention of complaint in Revelation. There's no mention of hardship that the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, underwent while writing that vision of the future. It's told that in his later 90s in church tradition that He was released from Patmos. I guess the Romans figured that somebody in their 90s could no longer be a threat to the government. He returned to Ephesus, where his church was, and they had to carry him to where the church was meeting. And during the church meeting, he raised up on one elbow over and over again and said, Little children, love one another. Little children love one another. And and one one of the followers there said, Master, why do you always say this? And he said, It's the Lord's command. If you love, it is enough. The Lord's command. If you love, it is enough. And I guess what I want you to know today, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that just as John became so consumed by the love of God and by his command to love, especially when you compare him to his early days as the son of thunder, and you see the transformation that took place in his life from someone who wanted to have a position of importance and call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans and, and hush somebody who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't part of their inner group, When I see that transformation that took place, I realize that that that's the kind of business that God's in. And he can do it with you and me too. John isn't the only beloved disciple. You're a beloved disciple too. And if you want to, and you write a letter to somebody, you can sign it, the one whom Jesus loved. You can sign it, the beloved disciple. Because you are. You are loved by Jesus, not because of anything you've done or ever could do, not because of anything, not because of who you are or who you might become. It's not because of who you are at all that God loves you. It's because of who God is that he loves you. Not because of who you are, it's because of who God is. And you're loved because of that. And since he loved you, you ought also love one another. And if you love, It is enough. Let's bow. Father, we love to make things so complicated, don't we? And then we read about someone who came so far and lived so long and grew so deep in the faith. We would have expected some kind of complex, complicated theology that he'd be spouting off in his latter days, but over and over again, he just said, little children, love one another. Love one another. If you love, it is enough. If you love, it is enough. And so help us to love one another. Help us to not... Place so much a focus on our past that we lose sight of who you want us to be in the future. Help us remember somebody like John who came from being a son of thunder to someone who preached a gentle message of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Not because of anything he had done but because of what you had done in him. Father, take us in that path of development and maturity and discipleship. So that wherever we are now, we can have a future in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.